0: We've been studying through First Corinthians, Apostle Paul's letter to Corinthian church in first century, and this is rather very practical letter, a very messy letter, because it deals you with the real life problems, and then the main thread of the undercurrent issues. Where their misconception about true spirituality. What does it mean to be really spiritual and mature? And in this church, there's all kinds of spiritual gifts and miraculous incidents and happenings, healings and prophecies, and highly spiritual city. But in that, it's on the other side, it's a very secular, sexually immoral city which reflects so much about Southern California. So as we're resuming Chapter 10, I think we need to understand the context, because when we are too anxious to get into the application too soon, what happens is we actually read into things, not only not getting what's really there out of the text, so let's get an overview on chapter 10. And today we're going to actually stop at verse 22, because at verse 23, that he's going to actually draw a practical conclusion which requires enough time for another message. The first thing we need to remember is chapter 10 is a, is a part of Paul's answer to Corinthian church's written letter question concerning food offered... To idols Corinth had several temples and one of the most famous temples is the temple of love goddess Roman equivalent would be Venus but in Greek it was Aphrodite Aphrodite was so well known that people would travel just to watch the statue is just monumental size and they had up to 1000 temple prostitutes a part of worship you know part of the love and sex and the goddess it was a, in in a really strange sense normalization of that kind of sexual activity in the name of worship so though you could sense the whole city was just covered with idol worships everywhere The food offered to idols, so usually meat market would have that, and there's no way to tell the difference which came from the temple, or which was just directly from the meat slaughters. So Apostle Paul takes this rather practical question, should we eat? Is it okay to eat? Is it not okay to eat? And there is a dispute going on. Instead of giving straight answers right away, Paul takes, three chapters starting with chapter 1 he gives a general principle which is a love principle knowledge puffs up but love builds up and then chapter 9 he takes his own life as an example positive example that he actually would give up his rights to build up others in love and chapter 10 today He's actually coming back to another example. This time, historical example. This is a negative example. What not to do. He chooses wilderness era. So for those of us in home group study, Exodus study, this is a familiar story from Exodus out of Egypt. And they're journeying through wandering in wilderness for 40 years. And that example is what Paul's going to take to to warn sternly the Corinthians. Secondly, it is also warning against being disqualified or today's passage language is overthrown from the prize. At the end of chapter 9, Paul talks about running the race to win. That everyone runs But the winner runs hard with all might to win the prize. From that, Paul is saying, not to say there is only one winner in Christian race, but to say we are all to run as if that winner with all our might. In other words, how we live our daily lives as Christians matters. God and at the end of that he said I also buffet my body discipline my body in order that, that I might not be disqualified having preached the gospel to others some many well meaning evangelical theologians and commentators some of them I'm, whom I respect with all good well meaning notion they actually took that qualification, a qualification from the full-time ministry as a preacher. There is no way you could look at it that way, because the theological commitment, prior theological commitment, the one cannot, who, one cannot lose salvation, eternal security, the doctrinal issue, and they led to that con- conclusion. But contextual, contextually, And even Paul's theology, if you look at that, there is a tension, healthy tension. Paul will say, in Christ, nothing can separate from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. There is no one who could condemn those who are in Christ. There is a security and assurance. But on the other hand, in philippians he will say with fear and trembling work out your salvation he's not contradicting himself but he's basically saying true grace and true say true salvation true faith will transform your heart into a live faith which is james's point letter of james faith without the fruit of works is dead. And Paul's point is that if you goof around, you're going to prove that you are a counterfeit follower, a Christian. Your faith is not real. And this is the hard part for our generation, as well as the Corinthians. So pay attention today with that healthy tension. It's not that we are losing salvation in this race or by doing, uh, falling into the temptations, but it's that we are continually doing that. We're going to prove to have counterfeit faith rather than saving faith, real, true faith. Thirdly, it is warning directly to the Corinthians most serious problem. The serious problem was not Christian freedom in the market. And the people who have knowledge and stronger faith. Oh, idol doesn't mean anything but it, it's offered. I don't have any problem. My conscience doesn't bother me. So I food, feel free to eat. And the people who used to worship. And who are, who are just impacted by upbringing watching idolatry, I mean, the idol worship, aphrodite, temple, hold that, everything that their conscience was violated. And Paul is actually saying, knowledge-wise, you're right. But the principle-wise, knowledge makes you puff up. But love is that you actually, for the sake of your weaker brother, you were willing to Give up. You're right. That was the point. But the real issue is not this. Paul basically said, it doesn't matter whether you eat or not. It doesn't make you any difference. Because of the knowledge is really uh, pointing to a clear point that only God, one true God exists. The real issue was among the strong. The people who had knowledge, people who didn't have any problem, people whose conscience was free, when another step and saying, "Oh, we all know only one true God exists, and all these goddesses and God, gods, these idols do not exist. They, they don't mean a, a squat." So when there is a festival, and when there is a, a you know games and Ismian games every other year, the regions will have their uh, celebration, preparation to that festival, which was idol worship, going to the Iph- I- Aphrodite, and they're invited, and there's a plenty of food and banquet. It doesn't matter, so I would go and participate, because my heart is not in it, and God, you know, the goddess doesn't, Aphrodite doesn't exist, so nothing it's a figurehead. And then Paul's actually warning about this specific problem. Lastly, it is a warning against idolatry and presumptuousness that confidence was the root cause of them going. Why would they go? Why would they think that they're, it's okay for them? They were Presumptuous in their own spirituality. The question that we're asking is basically, in what sense should we take heed to Paul's stern warning? What does he warn about this presumptuous spirituality, overconfidence, and not only idolatry, but overconfidence? Here's number one first warning. Don't be presumptuous about escaping from God's judgment, relying, relying merely on baptism and Lord's Supper as magic. The Corinthians thought, oh, I got baptized into Christ, and we took, we regularly take Lord's Supper, communion, Holy Communion every day, every, every time we get together, So that is a seal of protection. It's like a magical power. You know, there's some some athletes believe in, you know, uh, we want the championship, I wear the socks, so I'm not going to take it off and keep wearing. Something like that. Right? And Paul is bringing out historical example from Israelites during the wilderness. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware. By the way, that's Paul's way, way of emphasizing. This is very important. Pay attention. So that's the expression. I do not want you to be unaware. Another translation. I do not want you to be ignorant about this. Brothers, that our fathers were... All under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What's Paul saying? In Old Testament, in sense, them guiding by the cloud, a pillar of cloud, and them going through the Red Sea with this water, It was like baptism in their own days. Baptism always has a central point, focal point of identification, union. And the baptism into Moses meant Moses was the type of Christ, coming Christ. Moses was not the real Christ, but foreshadowing type of Christ. And their entire trip their journey was a type of Christian race. Or should we say, Christian journey through our salvation on earth. So when you think about this, Paul, Paul basically saying, you know how many times he repeats that all, right? Not some, not special crowd, but all of them were baptized in the cloud, in the in the water, into Moses. And all of them ate the spiritual food and spiritual drink. And that doesn't mean that they had some kind of a spiritual thing, but it was supernaturally provided by God. Manna falling from the sky. And the rock just gushes out water, fresh water for them to... Sweet water to drink. And this is mainly just a symbolism, um, symbolic legend also too. Rock didn't follow them. The expression of rock was always available to give fresh water. And that rock was, again, type. Who gives a living water to every soul? Christ. Rock. The rock was Christ. And he just makes it very clear. Just like you guys, they had supernatural experiences. They were baptized and the Lord's Supper was there for them. But it was not magic. Because most of them, God was not pleased because of their sins, because of their continuous disobedience. We'll get to that in the next point. But what does it mean then? Do we lose salvation because we we do something wrong? Obviously not. But once again, the point is about whether our faith is really true faith and true grace and true salvation we have. If it is, it will produce obedience. If it's not, you're continually living in disobedience and okay about it, presumptuous about your destination, your prize. That doesn't mean every day we should live in a fear. Obviously, the assurance in God's faithfulness and promise is always available. We are to hang on to that. But at the same time, we need to look at the danger of presumption. You know what Paul's point is, basically? Oh, it's great that you're baptized and you experience great supernatural things God, with God. You're even speaking in tongues. But if you continually disobey in such a way the Israelite's dead, you will not make it. You will pro- prove to be sham. You're not a true follower of Christ. God sees not in you. That's Paul is warning them that way. We have a problem in our culture, because there is a polariz- polarization happens, especially in this decade. There is really no middle ground. So if you are a legalistic Christian, you were legalistic Christian, very uptight, and there is a, so much a reaction. It's all about grace. And it becomes a cheap grace. A presumptuous grace. But if you look at that, I don't like that it's sloppy spirituality and push back and you become legalistic and judgmental and prideful in your own holier than thou attitude. Those tensions are the true spirituality here. But Southern Californians, along with the Corinthians, need to pay attention this morning because in elsewhere Apostle Paul and Apostle John gives out this similar tone of voice verse 5 and 2nd Corinthians 13 examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test Examine your heart. Don't assume. Don't, be pre, don't presume things. Apostle John in first letter of John chapter 2 verse 3 to 6 says a similar thing but in his own style. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. And if we keep, if we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, and in him truly the word, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He it does, it does not mean that Christians never sin or Christians are perfect. But he means if you continually dwell in sin and disobedience and your haughty mind, the seed of God that saves by grace and grace alone is not in you. So one thing that, lovingly as your pastor and shepherd, I want to urge you. We're up against the current again. Outside of this church, the normal purse of the Christian life is it's much about the pushing back to the two extremes. And we're surrounded by this Sloppy mentality of cheap grace. Be watchful. Let's take heed to Paul's stern warning. Number two, he gets more specific. Number two warning is summarizing it. Don't presumptuously follow the simple patterns of the Israelites in historical. Examples. There are four sinful patterns. See if we could notice that. Verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of, them, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse nine: We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Some of, some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Did you notice that? I'm going to briefly go over this historical lesson. Number one. Sinful pattern was idolatry. This is the scene from... Mount Sinai. Moses went up to the mountain to meet God and he's not coming back. He's getting two tablets, two tables of God's command. Ten words. Decalogue, Ten commandments. He's coming down. But because Moses is not coming down, they're screaming, show us God Visible God that, that delivered us from the Egypt so we could worship. And Aaron gave in. In verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a growing tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this, and he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the, peace, and the people sat down and, to eat and drink and rose up to play. Idolatry was happening. Do you remember what's happened? What happens next? Moses was so infuriated because of he he just met God and he's was filled with God's holiness in his heart. So in his anger he throws away those two tables. And the earthquake happens, smoke, and people are scared to death. People died overthrown in the desert. Second example was a sexual immorality. This is um, Numbers 25. Is a, a very interesting story. The king of Moab, which, whose name is Balak, had hired the prophet seer, uh, oracle giver, named Balaam, to curse Israelites because there are so many, and they have just conquered won the battle with Amorites. He heard about that. The, every time Balaam trying to curse them, God's spirit comes to him and all these blessings are coming out. Three times like that. He can't do it. So he got smart. A very snobbish, very smart way. He, his evil advice... The Moab woman is... Instead of me cursing... Because I cannot curse. Because God will make that blessing. Seduce them. Seduce the Israelite man. You guys are... You girls are pretty. So what happened was... A bunch of people... Were led by the... The Midianite woman. And then... One of the chief... The leader... Took one of the midnight woman into the tent in front of everybody. When God was warning them, in the middle of it, all that. So we pick up from this, and the Bible is real, and true story, no hiding. Verse six, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a midnight woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them the man of Israel the woman through her belly thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped nevertheless those who died by pla- by the plague were 24000 and obviously from modern readers we just get stuck with this violence. But what God interprets in that is because of God's jealousy, holy jealousy, it's not man's jealousy, what Phinehas did stopped his wrath. And not all of them died. But still the plague struck down twenty three, twenty four thousand 24,000 people. Sterny warning. Remember? In... In the church, there's an incest going on. In, in the name of their freedom, they're going out with prostitutes, uh, temple prostitutes, or just regular prostitutes. The sexual immorality were rampant. Be watchful. Number three pattern is testing God. This is, there are so many incidents, but it, it's a maybe uh, one good example will be uh, Numbers 21, verse 4 through 6. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea and to go around the land, land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought uh, us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loath this worthless food, talking about manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. It's like this. We're thirsty, there's a water. We're hungry, there's a manna. We're sick of manna, we want some food, there is the birds fully flying down and they could eat. And God was tested that his patience was running out. If your mom and dad of you know snobby's children, especially teenager ones, I have nothing to eat. What is that calling from you? <laughs> I make breakfast for our kids. I cannot serve the same thing twice in a row. There's complaints and grumbling. Maybe I should, should read this chapter. <laughs> but on a serious note, we all do that. We test God with our freedom. We test God in the name of grace that God forgives everything. God's grace is abundant. But you know what, again? Paul in Romans says, it's your kindness, mercy, and grace that leads us to repentance. It's not kindness, God's kindness that leads us to more sin more presumptuous attitude but to repentance to holiness number four finally is grumbling there are so many grumblings we studied in Exodus study also too but here's a sample in uh, numbers 14 36 to 37 they sent out Twelve spies into the Canaan, the promised land. Ten of them gave grumbling bad reports. They're like giants where their prey, were grasshoppers. Only Caleb and Joshua said, God has given us this land. Let's take over. Surely we could do that. Instead of listening to those minority two spies... They grumble against their situation. Pity party. Woe is us. And grumbled. In verse 36 in chapter 14 of Numbers. And the man whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And who, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him. Against the Lord. By... Bringing up a bad report about the land, the man who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. So, these four examples in, in, in summary idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and in our sense, is a testing Christ, and grumbling were sinful patterns that we could fall into. Why this, the whole wilderness journey is a type of a salvation, Uh, anyone who's in Christ. So we are to give, pay attention, full attention, be cautious, be very careful. Don't just presume that your eternal salvation is guaranteed. so in this in this sense paul is saying with fear and trembling work out your salvation let's not ever forget though what comes out after that for it is god who works in you so people who practice these sins were overthrown or disqualified And Paul is saying to the Corinthians who are presumptuously confident, don't think that you automatically will receive prize. And God will bring his wrath and judgment and prove that your faith is sham. How shall we take this? In our Christian life, in 21st century in Orange County, we should first think about this. The wisdom, beginning of wisdom and fear of the Lord. That you fear God and what God thinks of me and through the scripture, not your own imagination, is the reality. We cannot continually be presumptuous Because basically, when you think about true spirituality, this is hinging point. When you think you're becoming overconfident, and you feel really good about your spiritual life, and I have overcome a lot of issues, I'm on the plain ground, solid rock now. I'm never going to fall. That's the most dangerous time, which leads to warning number three. Take heed, so you would not fall in your self-confidence, and take heart, so you would not give up in despair. Verse twenty, verse twelve and thirteen is worth enough for us to memorize. Also, too, and notice that <clears throat> he. Paul's charge to the first the presumptuous the second to the despairing to to the people who are overwhelmed by their own brokenness verse 12 therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man God is faithful, and God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will also provide the way of, way of escape that you may be able to endure it. False charge to the presumptuous is take heed, be careful. The fact that you're overly confident is a sign of eminence. Preminent, eminent falling you're going to fall and this is the hard part because even in pastoral ministry this is an easy temptation including my own life when I sense people who are saying I've been there. I'm in a good ground now. I figured it out. Or oh, they say they, they have fresh water here. Oh, extremely good things. Juicy things from God. I've been there. They're going to come to this way again. Oh, they talk about just spiritual training or intensity. God's grace is enough. I'm doing okay. A friend of mine, a uh, good friend of mine, and I had Saturday breakfast. It was a pleasure to catch up. One of the things that my friend was sharing for a need for a true spiritual community, authentic community. Paul, I, honestly, I've been traveling a lot and doing business and doing work, corporate world. I was beginning to believe that well, I have all the resources and website. Why can't I listen to the messages? Why can't I do my church on Sunday right here? And I come to the conclusion, it doesn't work. It's a wisdom. So, for those of you who felt empathy, identification, with Brian and Hyojung's story, listen to this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, not beginning of the Christian journey, but all throughout, that you don't have anything in you to gush out that fresh water, to strengthen your own soul. You are helpless. You are end of the rope without Christ. If you have a full awareness of that, you will not have presumptuous. Confidence. You will not act like you arrived. There. Corinthian Christians did, having experienced all that, they even looked down on Paul. And they said, "We are spiritual." I think you have still so many problems. You can't even ask for money. You're treated ill, but you don't stand up for your rights. Unlike ours, we, sounds like a prosperity gospel preacher, right? We may not be like that. We could be in a certain way. I'm okay. Today I'm okay. I might not be like skyrocketing high. Uh, spiritually but I'm cruising when you have that mentality take heed lest you fall that's what Satan's tactic is too that he flatters you saying that you're great Uh, you know more than most typical people you have a heart that you understand things. The Christian grace is fundamentally so important to you. And then you climb in your mind over and over and up on the top of the tree. And that's when he shakes the tree. Make you fall. That's what pastors fall. And not only in sexual sins but in their pride in their presumptions I think God has mercy on our church God has mercy on me you know the first series that we did at Crossway as we begin Sermon on the Mount those eight Beatitudes were expounding on these are the times that I was in the, in the middle of Starbucks coffee, I didn't have any office I was wearing a headset to kind of block out all these noises bless it up, those poor poor thank you Lord for my brokenness thank you that I'm aware of my nothingness today as I build this church I am nothing Utterly nothing. You know, those are the Sundays. I don't know what I say because of beatitudes and scripture, and people cry because of their own brokenness. It's not a sad message either, but God's mercy in us, and my prayer for our entire congregation, even those of you who are visiting that you will touch by this blessing, that you will never have presumptuous arrived attitude about your spirituality, that your frailty, awareness of your spiritual, spiritual poverty will be there every day so that you could lean hard on God, be desperate on God, Who's truly, really, truly spiritual? Paul was spiritual. On the other end, Paul's charge to the despairing, the people who are bombarded with this depravity and brokenness and your temptation, especially recurring sins and addictions, you feel so utterly alone. And Paul is saying, no temptation has given you. Other than what is common to men, meaning that somebody somewhere in the history, every human being, some human being experienced it. You're not alone. And guess what? God is faithful. God's faithfulness is a provider way out. Are you despair in despair because you've been married? You feel like you're hopeless in your marriage? God is faithful. Take heart. Don't give up. Do you lose your heart because of the fact that some of the character flaws you have and you see it and you see glimpse of influence on your children? Don't lose heart. Take heart. God is faithful. Warning number four. He actually comes back to the Corinthian issue and says directly, flee from idolatry. Don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all take partake of that one bread. Consider people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then that food offered to idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to de- demons? and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? His point is very clear. It is true, strong in faith. Listen to me. Your knowledge is right. The idol doesn't exist. The Aphrodite doesn't mean anything. But, whenever you do those spiritual worship behind the idol there's a demonic presence they delight it so that's why occult and the wejivores and and the fortune teller there are demonic powers there and not only that Paul is mentioning going back to the Lord's Supper again what does the Lord's Supper imply? It's identification. You become one with the body of Christ by taking the bread. How can you participate being one with the idol and demons behind it and one with the Lord again? You can't do that. Don't fool yourself. Don't, don't think that you could get over it. You're going to be in big, big trouble. So, this is, you know, on the side note, this is one of those things that even for the fun of it, we should not play with occults. Don't go on, and, you know, especially the San Francisco, they might have the, the palm readers or fortune tellers. Don't go there. There are demons there, demonic presence, fallen angels, their power is real. So, what does he say? What, what is he saying? Coming back to the most serious issue. The Corinthian proud people who went to the temple of Aphrodite and participated and ate the food and said so everything's okay. They said, flee from idolatry. So in some sense, this is a little far from us, isn't it? But this is our lesson also too. We are to flee also from having our own idols. Idols simply defined anything that replaces one true God is idol. You and I might not have physical idol in our houses. No Buddha, no nothing like that. but invisible idols that replaces the holy one true God the creator the one who can truly satisfy us in the words of St. Augustine we could mistract our longing which is his definition of sin sins We buy into the lies of the evil one. Say, this will complete me. This will make me satisfied. And I think none other than um, Tim Keller, I would recommend his book, Counterfeit God, and he, he writes it so eloquently, so I conclude with this. What is an idol, he writes, it is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what, on, what only God can give. Let me read that again. Anything you seek to give you only what what only God can give. An idol has in such a controlling position in your heart. That you spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, or children, or career, or making money, or achievement, or critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill secure and comfortable com- circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or, and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, you may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is in whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship people of God do not worship anything other than one true God who can truly satisfy you do not buy into the lies and misdirect your longing to something created even if it's a good thing and as as we are kind of become desperate and spiritually poor before God, let's not assume that our families, our children, our wives, and our husbands, our career, our nice house, anything that we need to be vigilant against because of their goodness. And today is the day to listen to the stern warning and recklessly abandon ourselves to the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this difficult message and how timely it is that, that you will, we would have Brian and Hyojung's story of brokenness that we see that darkness differently now. It is actually bright darkness. That it is God's grace to open up our spiritual eyes to our need. Our prayer today is that that you will grace us. That you will fall on us Such a tender, convincing voice of the Spirit. Yes, Lord, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Show your kindness to each one of us so we may turn to you in full repentance. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.